Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Before we get going this week, I'd like to let you know about a couple of things that will be happening around these parts. This will be the final main episode on Henrietta Maria, bringing her eventful queenship and life to an end. Next week, though, before moving on to her successor, I will be doing a little fun supplemental. I'll leave it as a surprise, because I'm awful, but I'm sure you're going to like it. The other bit of news concerns nothing so small as my future in podcasting. As you all know, this show is coming to an end soon, but that does not mean that I will be hanging up my microphone. No, sir. I have the outline of a plan in place for the new show, but things are still up in the air as to how it will look, and that's before we'll get to things like the artwork and music and that sort of thing. In the coming weeks, I will be revealing details to my Patreon supporters and asking for their feedback on various things, so keep your eyes peeled for that. So, if you would like to be able to shape my future podcast, then now would be a great time to become a supporter. I want as much as possible for this all to be a surprise to everyone when I make my final announcement, so I'm inducting all of my Patreon supporters, present and future, into a Queen's Council, a secret society where everything must stay strictly between us. No telling your friends or fellow listeners about what is going on. So, to join our secret society, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash Queens of England podcast and keep your eyes out for the news. Remember, you can keep up with all the rest of the news about the podcast on social media and keep those iTunes reviews coming as well. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 62, Henrietta Maria of France, Regicide and Restoration. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Henrietta arrived back in her homeland of France in 1644, a sick and fragile woman. She had not been well through her final pregnancy, and she seems to have contracted tuberculosis. Compounding all this, she heard when she arrived back the catastrophic defeat at Marston Moor, where the North, which she had worked so hard to win for the royalist cause, fell to Parliament. She sent her man, Henry German, ahead to Paris, where he informed the French Queen Regent, Anne of Austria, that her sister-in-law was in France and requesting assistance. Realpolitik had always meant that Anne had never really given Henrietta the military and diplomatic support that she had always wanted, but she never lost the affection she had always had for the English Queen, and immediately dispatched physicians to help her, and awarded her a very generous pension of 30,000 livres a month, befitting the status of a fellow Queen. Even with this assistance, Henrietta made slow progress through northern France, stopping off at the spa town of Bourbon, before finally making it to Paris. Despite her poor health, it was a very happy homecoming for Henrietta. Not only was she reunited with Anne of Austria, she found that many of her friends from the old days, men and women who had been forced out of power by Cardinal Richelieu, were back in business. The Queen Regent gave her a further allowance, and also gave her a free run of both the Louvre Palace and the summer residence of Saint-Germain-en-Laye, which you may remember as being the place where she had grown up. With her health recovering, and her spirits raised by news of smashing royalist victories at Loswithiel and Newbury, Henrietta set about doing her damnedest to help her husband win the war. Anne of Austria's financial assistant to Henrietta was incredibly generous, and was marketed as being for her health and subsistence. But, whether by design or not, Henrietta spent as little of it as necessary, and sent the rest back to England. To help her coordinate the international effort in Paris, she gathered a court in exile. These contained all the usual suspects, along with some former royalist generals who had been forced into exile, such as the Earl of Newcastle. She lobbied hard for Anne and her chief minister, Cardinal Mazarin, to send more tangible help in the form of men, arms and supplies. But they refused. France was fighting her own war against the Spanish and had no intention of getting involved in that quagmire. However, she did get promises of assistance from members of the French nobility, such as her brother Gaston, who said that he'd give her four million florins and a consortium of others who promised to raise an army of over 10,000 men. But sadly, neither of these things came about. But Henrietta was not someone who gave up easily, or at all really, and wrote back to Charles in one of her letters, rather confusingly written in the third person, that, quote, There is nothing so certain as that the Queen of England does take all pains and care imaginable to procure your assistance, and is incapable of taking any delight or being pleased with my being here, though she hath all kind of contentments, but as she hopes it may enable her to send you help. She would send a constant stream of letters to her husband while in France, trying to stiffen her husband's resolve, advising him on appointments, and generally wishing to get the latest news from the war. Since she was coming up short with the French, she started to shift her focus to the Dutch Republic, Ireland, and the Pope. If you remember, her plan to court the Dutch revolved around negotiating a marriage between her son Charles and the daughter of the Prince of Orange. But it floundered for the same reasons it had done before, a lack of interest in backing a Catholic queen in a contest that had its roots in a religious dispute. Her Irish hopes laid with the Catholics of that isle, the threat from whom, if you recall, was the trigger for the outbreak of war in the first place. 
The Irish Civil War, which is also known as the Confederate War, was an intensely complex and bloody affair that, at this fairly early stage, pitted native Irish Catholics against English and Scottish settlers. Henrietta's dream was for a peace to break out so that a Catholic army could be sent to England to fight for Charles and negotiated with one of their leaders, a Jesuit called O'Hartigan, to achieve this, coupled with the hopes of papal aid. But the Pope was in the Spanish camp, who opposed anything that would make a French woman happy, and insisted on completely impractical terms for papal involvement. Indeed, papal agents in Ireland were actively hostile to the royalists, possibly hoping to break the island away from English rule to create an independent Catholic nation. Moreover, O'Hartigan proved to be duplicitous, and the letter was intercepted by Parliament from the Confederate leader, in which he stated that his end goal was an Irish conquest of England. Since Henrietta's involvement with him was now known, this was yet another propaganda defeat for the Queen. She never was particularly successful in raising men from abroad, but she did hit upon a clever scheme to get tin out of Cornwall that was still in royalist hands and shipping it to the Dutch Republic to be sold and the money used, amongst other things, to pay for arms which would be shipped to England. This was never quite pulled off successfully as she lacked the credit to get an advance on the tin to set the whole thing off, but it was an ingenious scheme. Henrietta was never an ideal ambassador as her reputation as a strident Catholic and uncompromising negotiator tended to count against her but even the greatest diplomat in the world would have struggled in her position, as all of Europe was still on fire at that moment, gripped by religious strife and the vicious war in Germany. That she managed to get anything at all for her husband's efforts is impressive, but, as has been a theme throughout this miniseries, she had the habit of inadvertently hurting her husband's cause, as well as helping it. Back over in England, Parliament had regrouped after their defeats at the end of 1644, forming the famed New Model Army, and managed to bring the king to battle at Naseby in Northamptonshire on the 15th of June 1645. This parliamentary army was better trained and organised than anything Charles and his generals had faced before, and won a crushing victory. Not only was the cream of Charles's army lost, but its baggage was captured, which contained, amongst other things, all of Charles's correspondence with his wife and the Irish. As soon as the New Model Army got hold of this, they realised what dynamite it would be, and sent the whole lot back to London. There, the leadership selected what they believed to be the 39 most sensational letters, along with adding some helpful annotations, of course, and published the whole lot together, distributing them across England and the continent, in a pamphlet called The King's Cabinet Open. While considerable blame was laid at the feet of Charles, their main target was Henrietta, who they once again accused of being at the root of all the evils currently befalling the kingdom, and the arch-puppeteer controlling their king. At the very beginning, the pamphlet stated that, quote, It is plain here, first, that the king's councils are wholly managed by the queen, Though she be of the weaker sex, born an alien, bred up in the contrary religion, yet nothing great or small is transacted without her privity and consent. It is a very neat summation there of every angle at which she could attack Henrietta, and it immediately had the desired effect. The parliamentary press fell over themselves, printing diatribe after diatribe, accusation after accusation, lambasting the king and queen. The greatest barbs were laid down by the Mercurius Britannicus, whose basic thesis was that Henrietta controlled Charles, and that Charles' overtures towards the French and Irish meant that he was the enemy of his own people. It analysed each letter in vicious detail. 
For example, Charles often ended letters with the line, Eternally thine, which you would think was a fairly innocuous thing, but Britannicus spun it thusly, quote, Eternally thine? This is the burden of the song, so that you must never look to see him as own man again. For himself, breaches and all, are resigned up into her hands for eternity. I quote this, partly as an example of the forensic nature of the accusations being hurled at the king and queen, but mainly because it's one of the earliest records I have seen of a queen being literally accused of wearing the trousers in her marriage. Now, I know what you're all thinking. Haven't we heard all of this before? The press has been talking up this Anglo attack for decades. Why was this different? Well, to many people, it wasn't. It was just preaching to the choir. But for any waverers, or those on the parliamentary side who favoured accommodation with Charles, this was incontrovertible proof that Charles and Henrietta had been conspiring with foreign governments, some Protestant, but mostly Catholic, to send not only money and arms, but also ground troops to help the royalist cause. This was worse than a king raising up arms against his people. This was a king calling for a foreign invasion by an army of Catholics to conquer his own people, with his foreign Catholic wife coordinating it all. It's not hard to see how Henrietta went from being merely a disliked queen to becoming completely reviled. But it was worse than that. As historian Michelle Ann White explains, quote, However abhorrent it was for Charles's enemies to see the queen apparently wield such great influence, even more repugnant was the idea that Charles had let this evil woman become so powerful. In so doing, Charles committed two unforgivable crimes. First, he threatened the patriarchal authority upon which all political and social stability rested. And secondly, and more dangerously, he imperiled the established Church of England. At this point in the Civil War, gender, religion, politics and authority were inextricably bound together. The Royalist response was rather lacklustre, largely because they didn't have much of a leg to stand on, but they did launch defence of the King and Queen, while avoiding talking about the contents of the letters themselves. My favourite response, though, is a poem by an Oxford don named Martin Llewellyn, who wrote an impassioned defence of a woman's ability to be a political actor in his pithily entitled long poem, a satire occasioned by the author's survey of a scandalous pamphlet entitled The King's Cabinet Opened. I'll be posting a link to the whole thing on my website at queensofenglandpodcast.com because it is ten pages long, but here are a few choice bits. Quote, But, lest this groundless seem, they reasons vex, and tell the world she's of the weaker sex. In what wild brains this madness first began. Though wondrous angry... Cause the queen's no man. Fond sirs forbear, do not the world perplex. Reason and judgment are not things of sex. Souls and their faculties were never heard, to be confined the doublet and the beard. Consult one age from this, and you'll find a queen the glory of your annals shrined. But who to far and distant objects flies, must say the sun wants lustre or he eyes. Our present injured queen returns that store and doth again what could be done before. By the king's judgment shows her own is right, and still she meets her ray with her own light. So here we have a pleasingly feminist-sounding defence for a woman's ability to influence the king, and how that's no bad thing. See, two can play at this rhyming malarkey. It backs this point up by making a reference to the memory of Queen Elizabeth I, 
If she could be a political actor, why couldn't Henrietta? The enlightened nature of this defence is further continued, where Llewellyn defends her right to protect her own religion. Quote, These are our famed Queen's crimes, but yet one more must be the main ingredient of the store, which seems to press so deep. There's naught so bright, but this may sully all its lustres quite. Tis her religion's care. She tries her powers to keep that still. Do we not so for hours? Why to one face so different shapes have been? What virtue is in us, in her, is sin. While this poem is more or less historical porn to enthusiasts of historical queenship such as myself, and I guess to most of you, it is fair to say that this wasn't exactly the most effective way of defending the queen against attacks. Other ploys attempted to play it all off as the actions of a man and woman in love, and who could truly condemn that? Plenty, as it turned out. While this significance is played down by a lot of historians, it's clear to me that the release of these letters were very important to how everything is about to go down. It gave concrete proof to extreme members of Parliament who sought to bring the Queen to trial, potentially for his life, as this had not been in any way the cause of Parliament up to this point. It painted him as a weak king who had allowed his wife to make him commit treason against the Constitution and heresy against God. It was not her fault the crushing defeat at Naseby saw these letters fall into the wrong hands, but there is equally little doubt in my mind that they helped condemn not only her husband's reign, but also his life. Charles, after seeing his depleted forces surrendering all over the country, made one last gasp attempt to continue the war by making an unannounced trip up to Scotland, where he hoped that he would find the Covenant government amenable to some sort of a deal. However, when he got there, they placed him into their custody while they tried to negotiate some sort of a deal. Their terms were simple. Accept the Presbyterian Church as the religion of England, and they will be on his side. Charles refused. Remember, all of this had started because of the Scottish refusal to accept Charles's attempt to impose Anglicanism and the Book of Common Prayer. He was not willing to give up on this. Henrietta, who likely did not see much difference between the two forms of Protestantism that she viewed as the wrong religion anyway, sent William Davenant to Scotland to try and persuade Charles to accept the deal. Her own father had converted from Protestantism to Catholicism when he took the throne to keep the peace. A little compromise here could pay big dividends down the line. Parliament attempted to broker their own deal with Charles at the same time, in a proposed agreement called the Heads of Proposals, which required, amongst other things, that Parliament be given control of the army and the power of bishops in the Anglican Church be reduced. Charles seemed willing to move a little on the issue of the army, but was resolute over bishops. Henrietta took the complete opposite view, and we know this because we have this letter that she wrote to her husband. Quote, For as long as the Parliament lasts, you are not king. And as for me, I shall not again set my foot in England. And with the granting of the militia, you have cut your own throat. For having given them this power, you can no longer refuse them anything, not even my life if they demand it from you. I have written to you so many times about it, not to grant anything more, and insensibly you engage yourself to it. Do you not think that when I see you so resolute in the affair of the bishops and so little in that which concerns yourself and your posterity that I am not in great despair? After having so often warned you as I have done and it avails nothing? Yet Charles ignored Henrietta's pleas for him to swallow his pride and make a deal with the Scots and decided to essentially plough on ahead with his own unworkable demands. 
not willing to budge on anything, basically not accepting that he had, in fact, lost the war. Over in France, Henrietta was described as being, quote, of late, much discontented and troubled, and, quote, seriously afflicted. With the continent still engulfed by war and the Pope still unwilling to help, she could do little more than send advice over to England and wait for news. Eventually, though, Charles did sign a deal with the Scots, called The Engagement, where he did finally compromise on religion, though whether he meant to go through with it is another matter. This meant that he finally got a new army to fight for him, as the Engagers, as they became known, agreed to invade England and take on its parliament, in what is now known as the Second English Civil War. This conflict was a far speedier affair than the First Civil War, and began in February 1648, seeing early royalist victories in Northern England and Wales, before parliamentary armies began to push them back. And at the Battle of Preston in August, a force led by Oliver Cromwell smashed the Scottish army. This caused royalist armies across England and Wales to fall like dominoes, ending the war after only six months. Worse, Charles was now the prisoner of Parliament, and they were pissed. Knowing that the situation was desperate, Henrietta wrote to the parliamentary commander-in-chief, begging to be allowed to be with her husband at this time. A brave and possibly foolhardy request, given that Parliament was as pissed at her as they were with the king. Her request was refused. To make matters worse, France itself was going through a fairly similar conflict to the one the Three Kingdoms had been going through, a brutal civil war called the Fronde, which pitted Louis XIV and his ministers against his uncles, much of the nobility, and the provincial legal assemblies. The royal family had abandoned Paris, which meant that Henrietta cut an isolated and rapidly impoverished figure at the Louvre Palace, waiting to hear the bad news from England. It finally came in February 1649. A breathless messenger arrived at the palace, announcing that two weeks earlier, Charles I, King of England, Scotland and Ireland, had been declared a traitor and a tyrant, and executed by orders of the English Parliament. The throne had passed to... no one. It was now a commonwealth, ruled by Parliament. Though she must have known that this was coming, the news still came as a crushing blow for the now dowager queen. The news was broken to her by her long-suffering friend and advisor, Henry German. He reported that when she heard the news, she froze like a statue. Quote, The words that we employed to rouse her found her deaf and insensible. Before many hours later, she finally broke down into tears. She was, though, determined that her husband did not die in vain. Two days later, a friend came to pay her respects, and Henrietta urged her to pass the following message to the Queen Regent Anne of Austria which outlined what she believed to be the reason behind all of her and her husband's misfortune. Quote, King Charles, her lord, whose death had made her the most afflicted woman on the wide earth, had been lost because none of those in whom he had entrusted power had told him the truth, and that a people, when irritated, was like a ferocious beast, whose rage nothing could moderate. The greatest evil that could befall sovereigns was to rest in ignorance of the truth, which ignorance reverses thrones and destroys empires. To be fair, this wasn't exactly an accurate reasoning for the defeat of her husband, which most historians put down to his inability to compromise and terrible political instincts. Her friend then quotes her directly, quote, I've lost a king, a husband and a friend, whose loss I can never sufficiently mourn, and this separation must render the rest of my life an endless suffering. She donned simple black mourning clothes, which she would wear for the rest of her life. She was 39 years old, 
and had spent the last decade expending every ounce of energy to promote the cause of her husband to keep him on the throne, while at the same time pushing her own causes. Now, she had to do the same, but with her son. She was then hit by more terrible news, as her daughter Elizabeth died in English custody, and her son-in-law, William Prince of Orange, died not long after, ending any hopes of Dutch aid for Prince Charles. After spending some time in the same Carmelite convent in which she had been educated as a girl, she was soon joined by her two eldest sons, Charles and James. The latter did not stay long, instead deciding to go off and fight as a mercenary for foreign princes, but Charles remained, forming with his mother a royal court in exile. Her bond with her son, though, was not as strong as the one she had enjoyed with his father. He had his own support network, which frequently clashed with that of his mother. He said to her that, quote, he would always perform his duty towards her with great affection and exactness, but that in his business he would obey his own reason and judgment, and did as good as desire her not to trouble herself with his affairs. Henrietta was not one to simply stop meddling when asked to, but Charles reacted exactly as you might imagine a son might when his mother tried to boss him about. He resented it and ignored both her and her allies, especially Henry German, whom he suspected of having secretly married Henrietta and of being an undue influence on her. In essence, a role reversal of the accusations levied at his father and mother during the Civil War. She was also reunited eventually with her youngest other son, Henry, but she had barely seen him since he was an infant due to the Civil Wars. Her Catholicism, which had been of a fairly moderate kind up until the death of her husband, became more rampant. Up until then, her confessor had been a moderating influence, but after his death, he was replaced by Walter Montague, who decided to let Henrietta be Henrietta when it came to her faith. She started to remove Protestants from her court in exile, and basically told her servants and loyal attendants to convert or leave. She continued to spend a great deal of time at the Carmelite convent, but even that did not become enough. So in 1651, she set up her own foundation at Shiloh. It was there that she sent her youngest daughter, Henrietta, nicknamed Minette, which I will also use for the sake of ease, to be educated, ensuring that she would be brought up a strict Catholic, unlike her siblings. She also tried very hard to convert Henry. Charles, however, knowing that any chance he had of recovering the English throne lay in presenting himself as a good Protestant, wrote to his brother that if he did convert, then Henry must, quote, never think to see England or me again. Henry, far more loyal to his brother than the mother he had hitherto barely known, took Charles' side. Furious, Henrietta vowed that she would never see or speak to him again. And she meant it, and they were never reconciled before his early death six years later. Not able to affect Charles' decision-making, and with him rarely at her court in Paris, instead preferred to hang out in the Dutch Republic, Henrietta moved back to the international sphere, as this was where she had the most clout. She continued her efforts to gain Irish support for her son, but the new Commonwealth, soon-to-be Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell, had just led an army over to Ireland and was enacting a brutal campaign of bloodshed and repression. But the Royalist cause was having far more success up in Scotland. Remember, Charles was not just King of England and Ireland, but also Scotland. His father had been a Scot long before he had become an Englishman. What right did an English court have to execute a Scottish king? Unlike England, they did not become a Republican Commonwealth and declared that Charles was their new king. Now that said, they were not willing to fight for Charles's cause without him making some serious concessions, including him signing the Covenant and accepting uniform Presbyterianism. 
Henrietta favoured this in theory, but balked at signing the covenant. Charles's closest advisor, Edward Hyde, was opposed to all of this. But Charles, for once, took his mother's advice, kinda, and signed the covenant, which Henrietta thought was going too far. Indeed, he was forced by the Scots to go even further than that, making a declaration that his mother's religion was a source of great shame to him. Now, this, of course, meant war with Cromwell and the English Commonwealth. History has named this the Third English Civil War. But that is really a misnomer, as it was in reality an Anglo-Scottish war. Things never really got off the ground for Charles and the Scots, and after a year of war, they were soundly beaten at both Dunbar and Worcester. Charles, who had only recently been crowned as Charles II, was forced to flee in disguise, where legend has it that he had to hide overnight in an oak tree to avoid detection. This became known as the Royal Oak, which is now the third most common name for a pub in Britain, the name of numerous towns across the English-speaking world, and several Royal Navy warships throughout history. So, if you see that name anywhere, that's where it comes from. But, I digress. Charles did eventually manage to get back to France and reunite with his mother, where their difficult relationship continued. According to one witness, quote, The Queen is constantly wonderful, Mary, and seemeth to be overjoyed to see the King safe near her, but he is very sad and sombre for the most part. With royalist hopes crushed, Henrietta went back to an old favourite tactic of trying to gain a good marriage for Charles, and her main target now was her daughter-in-law, Anne-Marie, known to history as La Grande Mademoiselle. But she was unwilling to marry the pretender to a throne that now no longer existed, and the intensification of the Fronde meant that she and Henrietta Maria were now on opposite sides of this French civil war. Furthermore, Cromwell and the Commonwealth were doing their level best to isolate Charles and his mother. They won a naval war with the Dutch, and then made a treaty with the French, of which one stipulation was the expulsion of both Charles and James from the kingdom. Henrietta was allowed to stay, as she was still a daughter of France, but her two sons were forced to leave. This really marks the end of Henrietta's political influence, not helped when Charles signed on with the Spanish, France's great enemy. Her health, which had never truly recovered from the illnesses that she had contracted after her first pregnancy, continued to deteriorate, and she had soured all relations with all her sons. Charles continued to fight the good fight, never giving up hopes that he might one day be invited back to rule the three kingdoms, but he was not interested in accepting his mother's help. In this period, she was still helped by her old friend and fellow dowager Queen Anne of Austria, who supplemented her income with her own funds. She still received visitors, such as her daughter Mary in 1656, with whom she conspired to regain the regency over the House of Orange, which had been lost to Mary's mother-in-law after her husband's death. Henrietta brought Anne of Austria on board and organised an attack on the Orangist's main stronghold, but the plot was betrayed, further damaging her name, as it was suspected that she had wanted merely to flip the principality to the highest bidder in order to fund the restoration. For the record, that was not her intention, but it didn't seem all that far-fetched to the Republicans in England. In 1657, she seems to have decided to slip into a kind of retirement. With help once again from Anne of Austria, she bought a chateau at Colombe, just north of Paris, where she formed a far more fun and relaxed court than the one she had led at the Louvre. There were entertainments, picnics and bathing parties in the Seine. It actually sounds rather idyllic, and probably better for her health than her former Parisian home. Indeed, it was remarked by many that this court was more popular than the French royal court at the Louvre. She had not given up completely on England, though, 
and despite everything she had gone through, still held some affection for it. According to one visitor to Colomb, quote, Her Majesty had a great affection for England. Her discourse was much with the great men and ladies of France in praises of the people and of the country, of their courage, generosity, good nature, and would excuse all their miscarriages in relation to unfortunate events of the late war, as if it were a convulsion of some desperate and infatuated persons. She also worked to gain her daughter Minette an advantageous marriage, but ran into the same problems that she had faced when she had attempted to marry off Charles. No one wanted to marry the sister of a king without a crown. But the end of the Fronde and peace with Spain meant that finally she and Anne of Austria managed to arrange a marriage between Minette and Henrietta's nephew, Philip, Duke of Orléans. But while this was happening, events in England began to overtake everything. Whether she truly believed that her son would ever win the throne of England back in these later years, we can never know. But her hopes must have been peaked in 1658, when Oliver Cromwell, Lord Protector and de facto dictator of England, died. He named his son Richard as his successor, but over the next two years or so, the Republican establishment started to collapse. The army in England, which had never been adequately rewarded for their service during the civil wars, or for that matter, properly paid, became extremely restless, while Parliament dissolved into extremism and self-preservation. The whole thing was eventually destroyed by a general named George Monk, who marched an army down from Scotland, organised the dissolution of Parliament, and called for fresh elections. The Long Parliament, which had, in many guises, featuring a number of purges, sat for nearly two decades, was over. It was replaced by what is now known as the Convention Parliament. The mood of the people had turned decisively against republicanism, and they voted to restore the monarchy. Charles sailed back to England in May 1660, and rode into the capital to see the streets lined with people and soldiers, the same men whom he had been at war with for his whole adult life. Henrietta was jubilant. She wrote to Charles, quote, we must, amidst all this, praise God. All of this is from his hand. She had gone immediately to Shiloh, where a service of thanksgiving took place. Quote, You cannot imagine the joy that prevails here, she wrote. I do not have a scant moment to myself for all the visits and business I have. After staying in France for just a little bit longer to attend to the final details of Minette's betrothal, she travelled over to England but was met by the terrible news of the deaths of two of her children, Henry and Anne, and so cut a rather mournful figure. The great diarist Samuel Pepys wrote that she was, quote, a very little, plain old woman, and nothing in her presence in any respect, nor garb, than any ordinary woman. She was reunited with both of her surviving sons, and attended James's marriage to Anne Hyde, the daughter of Charles's new chief minister. She did not stay long and returned to France after only a few months to attend Minette's wedding at the Palais Royal and stayed for about a year, getting her affairs in order to move back to England and help her daughter during her first pregnancy. When she came back to England in 1662, she seems to have decided to try and get the old gang back together. She settled back at her favourite place in England, Somerset House. It had suffered greatly during the civil wars and the Commonwealth and there she gathered all the men and women who had supported her for so long. She had been absent from the kingdom for Charles's marriage to Catherine of Braganza, but she approved of the match and got on very well with her daughter-in-law. Much as it had done in Paris, her merry and fashionable court rather overshadowed that of the sitting queen, and so it seems that Henrietta spent the next three years or so in relative happiness. 
She and Charles were now reconciled, to an extent, but largely because she had accepted that she was no longer in the business of trying to influence him. He had a wife and government of his own, and did not need her. She therefore spent most of her time restoring Somerset House to its former glory. And so they returned the Capuchin priests, the highly decorated altar, and ostentatiously Catholic services. Londoners were no happier than this than they had been before the Civil Wars, but largely they let things be. In 1665, London was hit by one of the worst outbreaks of bubonic plague since the Black Death, which led Henrietta to return to France. It had been a while coming. The climate did not agree with her, and she seemed to have recontracted tuberculosis. Anne of Austria, her great friend and patron, died not long after her arrival, and so she largely avoided the court and spent her time at Shiloh and Colombe. There, she largely retreated from you, only occasionally called into action, for example when France and England went to war in 1666. Her final month saw her racked with fever and insomnia, and she finally passed away on the 10th of September 1669 at the age of 59. She was surrounded by servants whom she had known pretty much since the expulsion of her French attendants in the early years of her reign as queen. They were loyal to the last. Her estate was the subject of wrangling between her son-in-law, the Duke of Orléans, and her son, Charles II, but it was eventually settled in the latter's favour, though he generously left most of her French lands to the church or his sister Minette. Louis XIV, her nephew, paid for a state funeral at Saint-Denis. As was French custom, different parts of her were buried in different places, with her heart interred at Shiloh, in a service paid for by her daughter Minette. There, the great French preacher Jacques Bousset delivered a stirring eulogy. Quote, Christian people, whom the memory of a great queen, daughter, wife, mother of kings so powerful, and sovereign of three realms, calls from all sides to this sad ceremony. You will see in a single life all the extremities of things human, happiness without bound, as well as misery, the long and peaceful enjoyment of one of the most noble crowns in the universe, all that which can render birth and position most glorious heaped upon one head, and then exposed to the outrages of fortune, the good cause at first followed by good success, and then the sudden reverses and changes unprecedented. Rebellion long held in abeyance, finally gaining complete mastery. There is a lesson which God gives to kings. Thus does he show to the world the worthlessness of its pomp and grandeur. Henrietta Maria is one of my favourite queens in English history. Not because she was the wisest or the most powerful, the kindest or the most devout. It is because she is just so utterly fascinating and lived in such difficult times. Not just the civil wars, but the wars of religion in her youth and the Fronde in her later years. She was raised in luxury and taught to believe in her own majesty, but fought like a demon to defend the rights of her faith, her husband and her children. On more than one occasion, she was forced to literally flee for her life with bullets flying and managed to organise her husband's forces during arguably the high point in the whole civil war period. She suffered from illness for her last two decades but still fought the good fight with an insatiable energy. She can't, though, be viewed in an unnuanced manner. Her personality, methods and obstinacy led her to make mistakes and fall into traps that contributed to her three kingdoms falling into civil war. She exacerbated the religious tensions in England and Scotland and was at least partly responsible for the rife factionalism that was the hallmark of Charles's government and war effort. 
Her involvement in the army plots and meddling in Ireland cost her and Charles dear. But while she contributed to the breaking out of civil war, she was not the cause of it. That blame lies with her husband and his ministers. Her influence over her husband, while not especially strong in political matters, was absolute when it came to his resolve. And she was responsible, at least in my view, for the conflict lasting for as long as it did. Her efforts in attempting to gain international support for the war effort were ceaseless. And while she did manage to raise some money, men and arms to the fight, in the end the war was lost despite them and restoration occurred thanks to the Commonwealth exploding of its own volition. She couldn't even arrange her son's marriage. A cultural legacy that I talked about in the second episode can rival almost any other English queen, an avant-garde and forward-thinking patron and collector, who shone the light for English fashion and culture for decades to come. Yet politically, she was as conservative as they came. There are two characteristics, though, that I think best sum up Henrietta Maria. The first is courage, and the other is love. Love for her mother, love for her children, but most of all, love for her late husband Charles, for whom she had once told, quote, There is nothing in the world, no trouble, which shall hinder me from serving you and loving you above everything in the world. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 